the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is pick up their phone and call. 210-340-9585 is our primary number. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. We can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. As always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, don't really have anything to, to start off with today except a reminder to please be in prayer. This is for uh, our church, our Joy of Jesus Week, Saturday at 11 o'clock uh, until 3 o'clock at Travis Park in downtown San Antonio. Um, Boy, there'll be more ministry going on there than you can possibly imagine. And we'd love to meet you. Come out and have some fun, get some free food, and just see what the Lord is doing. It really is an amazing thing. Let's get right to some questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls. The first one is from Summer. And she says, what exactly does it mean to dress modestly? Um, Summer, it changes depending on where you are and the type of year. For example... Uh, how you would dress in church is different than you would dress at the beach. There are people dressed very modestly at the beach in two-piece bathing suits. At the same time, if you wore that two-piece bathing suit to your church service, unless you were in Hawaii, by the way. In Hawaii, that's exactly how they go to church. Uh, then that would be immodest. So what we want to do is we want to think about honoring the Lord. We want to think about um, are we trying to attract attention to ourselves? Are we displaying our bodies in a way that is unseemly? And and certainly that would be tied into the motive behind your heart. But I wouldn't worry too much about it, Summer, unless you're, 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 the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart about something. Um, just dress. Dresses don't have to be below the knees. Um, um, it, it, there's not a sin to wear um, a, a, a medium to low top. Um, just, just why are you dressing? For whom are you dressing? We need to remember who we are ministering to. Now, having said all of that, um, there's a lot of people that have very strong legalistic opinions about this. We just don't. We just don't. I've never in 27 plus years had to talk to anybody about their dress here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. So the idea is dressing modestly in a way that honors the Lord. Uh, and here's the way I would think about it, Summer. I would dress the way I would dress if Jesus were picking you up and driving you to church or wherever it is you're going. 
And if you're comfortable wearing what you're wearing and you'd be comfortable wearing that with Jesus, then no problem at all. Just don't let other people sort of dictate what you should and shouldn't wear. You know, uh, the only standard for clothing is modesty. And and uh, I, I love that God makes things so simple. You know, summer we have... In our past here, we've had a couple of ladies who got upset because there were some other ladies on the worship team whose dresses didn't go below the knees. And they thought, well, in church, that's inappropriate. Um, I just told them, if, if, if this is going to cause you to stumble. And one of them said, well, well, that dress could make my husband stumble. I said, well, tell your husband to get a grip on his uh, on, on himself. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. But don't let anybody force you into being legalistic. Thank you, Summer. Here's an interesting question. This one is from Shane. He said, Pastor Ron, did 1948 commence the final generation on earth? Shane, so many people think that because that's, of course, when Israel was regathered back into their homeland uh, miraculously after 1900 years away, uh, something that, that no other nation or no other people group have ever had happened to them. And so they're thinking, okay, what's a generation? And I've heard all kinds of arguments. A generation's 40 years, a generation's 100 years. And because of that, since 1948, people have been trying to count down uh, the time until the rapture of the church and or the great tribulation. It's in um, Matthew 24, 25. It's in Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21 in the Olivet Discourse. And it is the misunderstanding of what Jesus was saying that has precipitated the controversies. Jesus said to his disciples, speaking of the end times, he said, surely this generation will not pass away until all of these things have happened. And people assume that this generation um, refers to the people that he's talking to, and they get freaked out because, well, they, they did die. Peter and John and James, the people to whom Jesus was speaking, they didn't. Um, um, see the end time. Things didn't come to fulfillment. But that's not what he was talking about. If you remember in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is talking about the signs of the end. There's two questions that, that, that are asked. When will these things happen? Referring to the end times. And when will we be gathered to you? Referring to the rapture. That's what uh, the Olivet Discourse deals with. Um, the problem is he's saying Jesus says, these signs will appear. And he talks about blood moons and miracles in the sky and and, and uh, great earthquakes and the things that we're all familiar with, with the signs during the Great Tribulation. And then he says, but I tell you the truth, this generation, surely this generation will not pass away until these things have been completed. And Shane, uh, what he's talking about isn't the generation of the apostles, He's talking about the generation that is alive, that sees with their own eyes experiences in their own day-to-day lives. Oh, they'll experience those signs and wonders. And Jesus is saying, well, that's the end time. So, you know, when you start seeing those things, um, we're right at the end. But it's not a generation as um, referring to the people that Jesus was speaking to. It's more the generation that he was speaking about. You know, uh, Shane, there's been a lot of people who, because of their misunderstanding, and a lot of this is helped by sensationalist, um, um, bad expository um, preaching. Um, you know, they start figuring, okay, well, if a generation's 40 years, uh, the generation in the Exodus wilderness passed away. They were in the wilderness for 40 years, so that's what the assumption is made. But there's been a lot of people because of that, that they've come up with these ideas. Uh, Israel came back in their homeland in 1948. A generation is 40 years. Jesus is coming back in 1988. Well, here we are in 2022, and he's not back yet. And they'll say, well, the prophecies failed. They didn't fail. Our interpretation, at least the interpretation of those who thought that. And so very quickly, Shane, when you see people trying to name dates for Jesus' return. Um, we know that they're not serious students of the Bible at all. Good question, Shane. Thank you very, very much. 
Here is an anonymous question. When it says to treat backslidden Christians like unbelievers, what does that mean? Um, anonymous, I don't think, the way your question's phrased, um, when somebody is a professing Christian, let me, I'll get to the backslidden Christians in a moment, but when somebody is a professing Christian and they're living in sin or they're living in rebellion against God, then we're to warn them once, then warn them twice, and then if they still refuse to change, we're going to have nothing to do with them. Now, that sounds very harsh in the culture that we live in, but it's really for their own good. It's like in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, um, in First uh, Corinthians chapter 5, when he, when he, he scolds them for uh, having a man who is sleeping with his mother-in-law uh, in the church, and everybody knew about it, and nobody was doing anything about it. And Paul said, I've already cast such a one, I handed such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And then uh, we know that the, the the punishment that was inflicted, the discipline that was inflicted by uh, Paul and then the church was sufficient because within six months, this man had repented of his sin, and Paul was exhorting them to welcome him back uh, into um, into the, the fellowship. Um, we have to understand when God tells us to do something, uh, it, it's because he knows what's best. So uh, when, when they act like unbelievers, my policy has always been to treat them like unbelievers. Here's what it means. It means that I tell them what the gospel is. When there's a Christian living in backsliding condition, and I hate that term, it's just like a very polite word for sin, um, you know, I, I, I share Jesus with them. I, I look, God loves you. He died for your sins. And typically, especially with professing Christians, they'll, they'll kind of object to that. Well, well, I'm a Christian. Well, well how, how can you say you're a Christian and you're living like this? You can go to 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians chapter 5 and tell them that people who live like you're living, you can just put it right before them will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then at the very least, they'll be probably upset with you for judging them. At least that's their perspective. But but the Holy Spirit will be there. And he will keep knocking on the door of their heart. So that's what we've got to understand. So really what it means is to treat them like unbelievers in the sense that we share with them the good news. The only time that we're to separate completely from them, Anonymous, is when they insist that they're a believer. At some point, we've got to remove them from the church so they don't have the covering of the church. They don't have the appearance of a relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't find comfort uh, from the body of Christ uh, because they're in rebellion against the, 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 the leader of our church. So uh, that's what it means. It doesn't mean treat them badly. It doesn't mean to call them names. It just means treat them like an unbeliever. Share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And again, when those people who continue to rebel against God and claim to be a Christian, and what I try to do, Anonymous, is when somebody's living like an unbeliever, uh, I I try to confront them with that. I, I want them to understand that if you're living like this, what makes you think you're a Christian? And they get angry. But that's okay. We've got to be able to take that. But I really want them to ask the question themselves. Well, what does make me think I'm a Christian? The Apostle Paul said that we're to examine our heart daily to see whether or not we're in the faith. So, Anonymous, that's what it means. Uh, let me also say this. That kind of church discipline is the single most difficult thing to do in our church culture. And I don't know if it's true in other parts of the world, but it's certainly true here in the West because we think that's so harsh, so unloving. And there are people who have friends, and when they have to, when they're disciplined by the church, their friends usually rally around them and accuse the church of being unloving. And uh, they, they have no idea what's gone in the, on in the background. They have no idea how many times they've, they've been warned or we've had conversations with them. And frankly, the, the, the body of Christ now too often gets in the way of church discipline. And then typically because now there are so many churches and there are just so many large churches in particular, uh, those kind of, of professing Christians, they just end up going to another church. And they go in, they go out. It's funny, I have, uh, even, even among Calvary Chapels, uh, we've had some people that have had to leave our church. 
and go to other Calvary chapels. Not one pastor, not one Calvary chapel pastor has called me to ask me, hey, this guy was at your church or this family was at your church and now they showed up over here. Is there anything I should know? And the result of that, of course, is they end up continuing in sin. So, Anonymous, I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585. Remember always that you're more interesting than I am, so we love your phone calls and questions. Here is one from Micah. He goes, uh, Pastor, what place does opinion have in doing a Bible study? Micah, none at all. None at all. I just had a, a lady get upset with me here in our church. And she said, well, well, why don't you have home Bible, stu- home Bible studies? And I said, we have Bible studies here at the church almost every night. We have men's studies and women's studies and youth studies. And then we have the big studies that we do. Uh, we have studies on Saturday for men and, and studies for women on Monday nights. Um, so, so this is what we believe the Lord wants us to do. And she says, well, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. And I, I, I laughed. I didn't mean laughing at her. It wasn't, I wasn't being rude. But, but my response to her was, well, why should I do what you think is right? Why do you have a right to an opinion about what God has told us to do? Now, here's the reason. Your question, Micah, touches on the reason that I don't have home fellowships. Um, I need to know well whoever's teaching the people that God has entrusted to me. It's just that simple. I'm not going to have somebody teaching that I only know casually. I don't know that they have the gift to teach. I don't know what their agenda is. And even assuming that that their heart is right, um, um, I, I have no way of knowing about their gifting. The other thing that happens in these home Bible studies, and they're small by by definition because not very many people can fit in the home, you'll find somebody who goes to those Bible studies uh, and they're very opinionated and they're very strong in their personality and basically they hijack the Bible study and they turn it into their own personal forum uh, for sharing their opinions and in some cases with nefarious motives, they'll they'll try to draw people after them. And I'm just not willing to to allow the, the people that God has entrusted to me to be exposed to that kind of nonsense. So, Micah, that's why we don't do it, because opinion has no place in a Bible study. And in these home fellowships, when somebody says, or in a Bible study where there's there's conversation that goes on afterwards in Pastor Ken's uh, Monday night Bible study and in um, uh, our Saturday men's Bible study in our Monday night women's Bible study. There's always time for at the end uh, for discussion. And whenever somebody says something, well, to me, this says it doesn't matter what it says to you. The first thing that you got to know is what does it really say? And you got to have the, the, the tools to be able to interpret the Bible study, uh, the passage of Scripture. And then you've got to make practical application in it. But when it goes off in a tangent, I remember, and I have nobody holding on the line, so we'd love your live calls. But uh, I'm going to take a minute with this. Uh, I, I remember um, the very first, as a Christian now, the very first home Bible study that I went to was on a Sunday night. Uh, the, the people that hosted it were like the nicest people in the whole world. They were thrilled to have somebody at their house. They were they were um, um, studying John chapter 2. It's just how it turned out where Jesus changed water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And as a pretty new Christian, I'm sitting there, and there was one lady who just was livid that God would turn something good, water, into something sinful, wine. And all I could think, now remember, I'm a new Christian. Even then, all I could think was, well, that misses the whole point. So opinion has no place in a Bible study. It doesn't matter what you think it says. We need to be Bereans, workmen, rightly dividing the Word of God, studying to show ourselves approved, before we actually even have a right to an opinion. 
And obviously, Micah, that's where we get all of these so-called churches that approve of gay relationships or transgender um, um, men and women. Um, um, you just, oh, you know, well, we're a loving church or this is a loving group and we don't judge people. That's really, really bad. I was just thinking a moment ago, uh, I remember going to a men's retreat that we were having and we actually passed the church. It was off the 281 in the Marble Falls area. And the church's name, the name of the church was Non-Judging Church. And I looked at that and I thought, I can't believe it. What have we come to? Well, that's what opinion in a Bible study does. That's why the, the, the facilitator or the teacher of a home Bible study needs to be gifted to teach the Word of God. Good question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Jocelyn. Now, I'm sure this isn't our Jocelyn. This is the name of one of my very favorite people in the whole world. This Jocelyn says, Do you think the U.S. is currently under the judgment of God? Sort of. No, I'm not copping out here, Jocelyn, so let me explain why I said it that way. Uh, we're not in the Great Tribulation, um, but, but I believe that God has removed his hand of blessing from the United States of America. Uh, I, I, I think it ought to be pretty clear to everybody. Um, that means Christians who are still here, real Christians, faithful Christians, are still suffering the consequences of that. But remember, when the judgment of God is poured out, we're going to be out of here. God will not judge us. Now, he will leave us here um, um, as we approach the Great Tribulation. But but when, when we get to that place, that's why the church is raptured out. Now, here's why I think the United States has been that God has removed his blessing. It's almost like the 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 glory departing from the, the temple or from the tabernacle, uh, Ichabod, the glory has departed. And God has a track record of of um, putting his own people, Israel, under judgment, using foreign nations, really evil people, to judge them. Well I think the United States we were we began in a in a near miraculous fashion. Um we actually began, it was a movement born in rebellion against England. Um, there's a lot of interesting uh, stuff you can read about whether or not the revolution was um, being disobedient to God. It doesn't matter, we weren't a Christian nation. But um, God raised us up, I think, for a very specific reason. And he raised us up to be the most powerful and the richest nation on the face of the earth. And he did it in a... Uh, in a nanosecond, um, um, relatively speaking, you know, other nations um, became strong after um, hundreds, even thousands of years. Um, but but the United States, I mean, we were the, the most powerful nation in the world in a relatively short period of time. We're still less, well, well less than 300 years old and 250 about. And, and, um, 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 we ascended rapidly to being the most powerful nation, the richest nation on earth. Why? Because we were being blessed by God. Now, it's not that we deserved the blessing, but God was raising us to be Israel's protector. When they came back into their homeland in 1948, he had to have a nation, a powerful nation on this planet that would protect him. That was the United States. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And the United States, for a large part of our history, was there to bless Israel. And we've done that. But now we don't even do that. Now we've turned our back on Israel. And that just started the process. But then when our country has just sort of thumbed our nose in the face of God, um, you know, God's not real, even even professing Christian churches and Christian groups. Um, you know, we've embraced we, we sin. Uh, we call good evil and evil good. And when we're living lives like that, when we want nothing to do with God, God just quietly leaves us alone with ourselves. 
And Jocelyn, it's never, ever good when we're left alone to ourselves. That's why being obedient to the Lord is so much. If there's going to be a revival in this country, and I pray to God that there is. Not hopeful, but I, I it's the desire of my heart. It's going to be a turning away from sin and a turning to Jesus that's going to spark that revival. Now, again, there's no evidence that it's going to happen, but we can all hope, we can pray. But I do believe that God has removed his hand of blessing from us. And that's why we see things. we got the leaders in government that we have. That's why we can't have civil conversations anymore about these issues. It's just one side shouting at the other side with nobody having ears to hear. There are no statesmen who are left around. God is simply saying, this is what happens when you abandon me. So, Jocelyn, I think we are uh, not blessable but we're also not under the judgment of God yet. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. We would love your calls, 340-9585. This is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back in 30 minutes. In two minutes. <laughs> To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'm laughing at myself because we're thinking we have 30 minutes left, and I also wanted to say we'll be back in two minutes, and somehow came back, I'll be back in 30 minutes. So, um, oh, well, if you can't laugh at yourself. Here's a question from Frank, and it's a good one. How do you reconcile Adam and Eve compared to scientific evidence that humans were much lower life forms like cavemen and Neanderthals? Frank, the reason I said this is a good question is because this is one of those foundational things that as Christians, we simply have to make a choice about who do we believe. Do we believe the Word of God, or do we believe science that begins? Now, this is important, Frank. Science begins with the assumption that there is no God. You think they have an agenda? It's interesting, you know, when I grew up, um, Neanderthals and Lucy and Piltdown Man and the others... You know, they were, they were thought to be hundreds of thousands, maybe a million years old. Now you look back and it's, it's millions and millions of years old and some people even billions of years old. It's just, you know, the, 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 the farther we get away from God, the, the, the more time elapses from the time that they uh, supposedly appear on the earth. Here's what you've got to do. You've got to decide whether you believe the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning God, or not. Now, the evidence is overwhelming, Frank. Let me just point to the first witness. The first witness, of course, is Jesus. Jesus said that Adam and Eve were the first two humans ever made by God. In fact, the only two humans made directly by the finger of God. Now, do you believe Jesus? And people say, well, but but you know the evidence. Well, here's a big, big, big problem. If, if you don't believe that Adam and Eve were the first two humans... And they certainly weren't knuckle-draggers. If you don't believe that they were the first two humans, then Jesus has actually lied to you. And if Jesus lied to you, Frank, then we don't have a Savior. That's why we've got to make the, the, the decision that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are to be taken literally. And if, in fact, Adam and Eve weren't the first two humans, if that's true then we are all lost in our sin and this whole Jesus thing is a complete myth. You cannot believe in evolution and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior because a lying Jesus can't save anybody. So here's what you've got to do. You've got to look critically at the evidence. Answers in Genesis is a good place to start, Frank. You can go to that um, online 
And they've done a, a, a great job. These are scientists who are also believers. And they do a great job. They have a lot of information available to you um, that supports a young earth, that supports Adam and Eve being literal people. But remember the science and the motive behind the science. They begin with the, the premises that there is no God. And they're not going to have their minds changed and they're not going to let evidence so they come up with these alternative theories. Stephen Hawking, who now knows better, Stephen Hawking, a brilliant man, a brilliant beyond um, our ability really even to comprehend, but in his brilliance, he overlooked the obvious. And it costs him eternity. So I don't have to reconcile just to make a decision. If you look at the evidence, look at the facts, there's no evidence that suggests that there was any transitional forms between um, cavemen and the people that we are right now. There's no evidence. There's all kinds of speculation. And they sound so smart and they are so condescending, Frank. But there's no evidence. On the other hand, the evidence for the truth of our Bible And the truth of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead is overwhelming. The problem is we choose the lack of evidence or the the made-up evidence of science because that evidence never tells us we have to stop sinning. If we choose Jesus and we look at that evidence, that evidence, the only conclusion is, "Uh uh-oh, I'm a sinner, I'm in trouble, I need to stop sinning. And that's why Paul got in trouble at Morris Hill. And he said, um, in the past, God overlooked your sins, overlooked your idolatry. But now, now why? Because Jesus is alive. But now he's commanded all men everywhere to repent. And that word repent, the idea of having to confess that I'm a sinner. Well, that just turns people into monsters. And they stop listening. So uh, I, I don't. All I had to do, and, and this is my own personal journey, Frank, uh, as a as a new Christian and a very curious man. And by the way, I didn't have any church background at all, none at all, uh, when I got saved. I'd never opened a Bible, um, but I asked a lot of questions. And the first thing I had to do is, is, well, the Bible seems to be what everybody's depending on who believes in Jesus. So how do I know I can depend on the Bible? And when you make that um, commitment, I'm going to find out what's true. Um, God will show you what's true. Jesus said, if you seek me, I will be found by you. And Frank, that's what we've got to do. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Phyllis on line one from San Antonio. Phyllis, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I was watching a documentary uh, in regards to Ethiopia, and it indicated that Ethiopia or the Garden of Eden was somewhere around Ethiopia. Can you explain? The only thing I found in the Bible about Ethiopia is about the eunuch, I think. You know where? Uh um, um, I forgot which one got into the... um, Yep. Chariot Act, with him. And, yeah, Acts chapter I, 8. I don't know any, yeah, but I don't know about the Garden of Eden being close to Ethiopia or anything of that nature. Can you help? Yeah, I can try, Phyllis. Uh, it, it is, it, it's, it's impossible geographically to know where the Garden of Eden was. We, we need to remember that there was a flood that changed the topography of the entire world. So, so everything that was there. Now we've got the coordinates, the, the 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 rivers that it sits by, and I mean, if we could now trace those rivers, we could come up with a pretty educated guess. But here's the problem: all of those rivers that we now know the names of, all of those rivers changed. Everything changed when the world was flooded. So, uh, it is it is super 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 unlikely that. The um, um, Garden of Eden was located 
uh, anywhere near Ethiopia. Here's there's a lot of interesting stuff about Ethiopia. Um, you know, Ethiopia, Ethiopia. Even now, I actually watched a 60 Minutes program on it several years ago. Um, Ethiopia is said to be guarding um, with with significant force the location of the Ark of the Covenant, that the Ark of the Covenant was uh, um, carried away to Ethiopia, and they have been now for generations, they have been the bearers of or the protectors of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if uh, Harrison Ford can't find it, we know that the Ethiopians didn't find it. But, but, But there's all of that. Now, here's what's really true about Ethiopia, and here's the only thing historically, Phyllis, that we can count on at all is Ethiopia remains to this very day uh, the only, the, the longest continuous running Christian church in the world. Uh, a church that was established and has functioned uninterrupted for nearly 2,000 years. And we know that because that church was started by the Ethiopian eunuch who took um, his newfound faith to uh, Candace, his queen, and she was saved. She got saved, and 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 the church was established. And that church has been functioning uh, in an uninterrupted fashion uh, for for all of this time. Uh, and so you want to really go back to the oldest church, the Orthodox Church. You say, well, we're the oldest. You know, we're the we're the longest reign. No, it's the church that was established in Ethiopia. And uh, there's still a Christian presence, although a minority Christian presence. But there's always been a Christian presence in Ethiopia. And I think in honor of the Ethiopian eunuch and his queen, uh, I think that, uh, that that church will always have a light uh, until Jesus comes back for his church. So that's all we know, but no way at all to know uh, where the... Um, um, Garden of Eden was. And one other thing, you know, uh, there's a lot of speculation also about where the the, the Noah's Ark came to rest. And, uh, you know, there have been all kinds of pictures taken and speculation that it's in Mount Ararat in modern-day Turkey. Um, and they've got this photo evidence. Um, but remember, um, modern-day Turkey, we don't know where that was. Well, you know, again, the topography, the whole earth was changed during the flood. So I wouldn't spend any time, Phyllis, at all, trying to figure out where the Garden of Eden was. Um, we'll find out the answers to all those questions when we're with Jesus. Great question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Kimberly. Um what you have for someone, or I'm sorry, what advice do you have for someone struggling with pride? Um, Kimberly, deal with it now. That's my advice. Humble yourself before God humbles you. It's so much easier. There's so much less pain. Deal with it now. The other advice, and this is more practical, is just be with Jesus. I was listening to uh, the radio show. I don't sleep sometimes at night very well, and and um, um, th- my mind starts running. So I have an earplug, and I, I got a, the radio set to to uh, our Christian radio station. And I woke up um, um, this morning, couldn't get back to sleep, so I was listening to uh, my program that came on at five thirty. And. Um, um, I, I was talking about then, and I think this was a Bible study that I did in like 2015. So that's seven years ago, and I didn't realize that I'd been saying "just be with Jesus" that long. And that's what I said in that study: "Just be with Jesus." Here's the thing, Kimberly: when you're with Jesus, then humility is the only natural response. In the presence of the Lord, you know you have nothing to boast of. You know there's nothing good in you, that everything that comes from you that is good comes from God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's really hard to struggle with pride, to have any sense of pride at all when you're hanging out with Jesus. Um, but, but that has to be a lifestyle. 
the minute and here's something you can do you can ask the holy spirit show me if if you know paul says to examine yourselves daily to see whether you're in the faith well lord you see if there's any wicked way in me you see the pride in me so humble me lord and show me before i embarrass me before i bring shame to you show me those areas of pride that i need to deal with and usually it comes from thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. Um, again, in the presence of the Lord, you're going to see that there's nothing to be proud of. Kimberly, it wasn't too long ago in this program, and, and it, it, my, my life goes by so fast it's hard to remember time frames, but it wasn't too long ago in this program that I had somebody ask me how I deal with pride, um, you know, being a public person and, and and uh, when you're a public person, there are always people that say nice things about you. Um, being a public person, there's always people that say bad things about you too. But the idea is um, um, that she asked me, so so how do you how do you stay humble? And the, my answer to her was was I recognize that the gift that God has given me to teach the Bible. It's really the only thing I can do. There's nothing else that I. I could brag about, but but um, that gift comes from him. And since the gift comes from him, how is there any possibility of me boasting in it? And I also realize that when I get proud, when I think more highly of myself than I ought, then the power of the Holy Spirit is sort of shut off. And I don't want that power to be shut off. So I'm I'm always aware. I am always aware of my own inadequacies. And that just makes, at least in my heart and mind, Kimberly, it makes me more aware of the goodness of God and my heart grows ever more grateful because of it. So deal with it now. Just realize, here's the truth. In my flesh is nothing good and every time I'm in my flesh, I cause trouble, I cause pain, I cause heartache. And I'm simply not going to do it. And Kimberly, you know that pride is the, the the sin, the original sin. And it is one the devil will use to destroy you if you don't. So just walk with Jesus. And that kind of humility will be very attractive to other people. And then you'll realize, you know, when you say those nice things, I know they're not true. And the Lord will just say, shh. Just say thank you, and then you move on. Here's a question from Anthony. I know there's no time in heaven, but Revelation 8 says there is silence in heaven for half an hour. Can you explain that? Is it a contradiction? Um, It's not. John is on earth when he receives the vision. John is on earth, and and, uh, that, that vision that John had... Um, will reference, okay, this is how long it was silent in heaven as it is viewed from earth. So a half an hour, uh, Peter says a, a, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So half a, a half an hour is just kind of a, a minute. But the silence in Revelation chapter 8, Anthony, is designed by the Lord to to demonstrate to those of us on earth the the gravity of the situation, the horror of judgment to God. Isaiah 28 says that judgment is a strange work to God. You know, unfortunately, uh, here on earth, judgment is not a strange work. Uh, we judge people all the time. And, and um, um, God hates judgment. And the idea is that when people are being judged, when they're losing their lives for eternity, it breaks the heart of God and it must also break our hearts as well. You know, Anthony, speaking about judgment, we had an afterglow this past Friday night here at the church. And a lot of the words that were given were words uh, warning us about about being judgmental of people. And at one point, uh, I felt like the Spirit was prompting me to ask everybody who deals with a judgmental heart or judgmental spirit to stand up so I could pray for them. 
And I thought there'd be half dozen people who would be honest enough to stand. Well, almost the whole church stood. <laughs> I mean, if you have a problem judging people, if you find yourself judging people, then please stand up. And I was just shocked. I mean, pleasantly, but but everybody stood up. And and uh, I, I was able to pray. I think that really pleased the Lord. So judgment, we need to understand, is very, very grave. God hates to do it. We should hate to do it. And yet we're quick to rush into situations where we judge other people. So um, that's just to give John a frame of reference that he could understand uh, that would demonstrate that... Um, Judgment breaks the heart of God. Here's a question from Robert. He says, what do you mean when you say we have to remember the Jewishness of Jesus' ministry and why was he sent only to Israel and not to Gentiles? Um, Robert, I do say that a lot. And let me explain. Uh, If you lose the Jewishness of Jesus' ministry, then you are going to run into all kinds of interpretation problems. You can't correctly divide the Word of God uh, unless you understand that Jesus' message was Jewish in form, it was Jewish in content, and it was Jewish in terms of of this is the goal. He came to reveal that he was the the Jewish Christ, the Messiah. And, um, you know, if, if we don't understand that, then we're going to read the New Testament, the Gospels in particular, and we're going to realize, or at least we're going to conclude, that all the things that Jesus said to his disciples were meant for us. The things that he said to the Jewish leaders were meant for us. And there's application for us in those things, but he wasn't speaking to us. And the first rule of of biblical interpretation is context. What does the context indicate about the passage of Scripture? And everything Jesus did was for Israel. He came as their Savior. And because they didn't want him, there was obviously horrible consequences that are still being played out to this day. Uh, There's a great book, and Robert, I recommend this book every time I get the opportunity. It's called The Life and Times of the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim, E-D-E-R-S-H-E-I-M. And it really, I mean, it's, it is, to me, the authoritative work. And I don't think anybody should ever study nor read the Gospels without this book close by. And it just explains the, 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 the Jewishness of his ministry. Um, um, it helps us understand, for instance, the Syrophoenician woman, um, when um, she wanted to see Jesus, or later the Greeks that came to see Jesus, and and Jesus rejected them at least initially, um, and and you know why would he do that? Well, it's because he came to the lost sheep of Israel. That was his mission, and he knew Jesus did, of course, that the the church would go get Gentiles. Jesus made um, several statements that he had sheep that were not of this fold. In other words, uh, I've come to Israel, but but don't worry, God has sheep that are coming from other places. And the whole point of that was to demonstrate that Gentiles were always a part of God's plan. But there was a mystery that had to be revealed, the mystery of Jew and Gentile. Remember, Jews hated Gentiles, Gentiles hated Jews. They had nothing whatsoever in common. Neither could imagine that there would be the other in heaven in any capacity. And um, God says, no, no, there's a mystery that will be revealed later. Jew and Gentile. Paul reveals that mystery or that mystery to uh, in his letter to the Ephesians. Um, becoming one body in Christ. Not two bodies, not, not Christians and Jews, Messianic Jews, but one body. And that's that's the whole idea. Why was he sent only to Israel, not to Gentiles? Because that was his mission from the beginning. That was to fulfill prophecy. And Robert, Matthew's gospel is by far the best, um, the, the most Jewish of all of the gospel accounts because that was Matthew's purpose, to demonstrate that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one of Israel. Okay, this will be our last question for today. This one is from Brenda. And she wants to know, is it sometimes okay to lie? Brenda, I don't know why, but I get this question with 
some frequency, uh, it's never okay to lie. Never, 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 never. It's never okay to lie. Now, people always say, but, but, but in the Bible, even, even Rahab lied and the, the, the um, um, Jewish um, uh, midwives lied. Um, and they say, well, then, then we can lie. No, you can't. The devil is the father of lies. And as we tell little white lies, we're influencing our children. We're compromising our witness. And the one thing that that we can look at, everybody that lies in the Bible does so either because they are unbelievers or because their faith as believers failed. So it's never okay to lie. We like to rationalize it. We like to tell little white lies. Uh, Paul and I were watching a program or listening to somebody on the radio. I can't remember which it was. But uh, he was talking about this very thing. And I said, and that's why you don't tell your kids there's a Santa Claus or an Easter bunny. Because it's never okay to lie. Jesus said that when we're lying, we're speaking his native language. That's pretty heavy, Brenda. So, no, it's never okay to lie. It's not okay to exaggerate. It's not okay to withhold truth. Now, you don't have to say things. You don't have to to share everything. It's not like we're compelled to just unload our burdens on people when they come. But ask a direct question. We Christians have to be counted on to tell the truth. In love, but to tell the truth. It's never, ever okay to lie. Brenda, thank you for the question. Hey, we're just about out of time uh, for our program today. I want to thank you for tuning in. I want to remind you, please, please, please be praying for Joy of Jesus Saturday, October the 22nd at Travis Park in downtown San Antonio from 11 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We would love to see you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.